0: Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What happened during the UC Berkeley experiments of 1981? What are dogmen? Why is California so weird? <laughs>
1: it's a very good question. And welcome to our 899 899- Edition. Actually, this is actually 901. No, next week is our 900 show. Yeah, I'm the sorry. one you're going to miss. Yes, unfortunately. Right. Uh, I have a prior engagement that was planned months and months in advance, uh, unbeknownst to myself. Anyway, in lieu of that, this is the 899th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben, and those questions came from... Uh, actually... First of all, we're coming to you from W O O N A M and FM radio here in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, on the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live and on TuneIn.com. I'm Ben, and those odd questions came from my co-host, partner in Paranormal Adventures, and dad, Paul. And today, we bring you a guest uh, with some pretty strange reports from the West Coast of the United States of America.
0: I have to say, Ben, in, in uh, honor of your conscience, this would have been the 900th show if we hadn't been preempted by the Boston Bruins. Uh, that week in uh, in April.
1: Oh. So we lost it. Okay. Anyway. Well, that makes uh, me feel a little bit better.
0: Yes. Uh we welcome back one of our favorite cousins and one of our favorite guest co-hosts Rick Eno, our show's Northern California reporter. Hey, Rick.
2: Hey, good morning. Great to be here.
0: Well, it's afternoon here, but that's all right. That's, oh, that's what you right. get for living so far away. <laughs> anyway, coming to us via Skype today is Devlin Rooney. Author of the just released UFO Investigator, a personal look into circumstance, investigations, and discovery, Dev has over 45 years of experience in UFO research and independent investigative experience. <coughs> Excuse me, she has had many UFO sightings, with her main interest being the abduction phenomenon. In 1977, after talking with our friend Betty Hill of the, uh, I should say we friends with her niece um, of the landmark 1961 abduction case in New Hampshire. Dev pursued her quest to become a UFO investigator and researcher. She joined the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON, in the mid-1980s and is now the Assistant, assistant State Director for Northern California. Dev also is an investigator for MUFON's Star Impact Project. Dev has called in Behind the Paranormal before, but this is her first time as a guest in her own right.
1: So, Dev Rooney, welcome to Behind the Paranormal.
3: Hi, thank you for having me. Good morning.
1: Well, good afternoon. <laughs> uh, whatever. Good day. good day. Oh, hey, you know, it's time is relative, and so it's it's just kind of one of those things where, hey, you know, it could be afternoon somewhere or morning or whatever. So let's jump right into this. So your interest in UFOs goes back to childhood, yeah? Uh, but you're interested in Bigfoot, Dogman, and other cryptids as well. So how did that begin?
3: Well, I started to realize that um, all of that is interconnected. with UFOs, there have been sightings and reports of people that claim to have seen Dogman and Bigfoot in relation to UFO sightings. I started to look more into that, and some of those stories are pretty amazing. Uh, as, as far as the cryptids, like uh, Dogman for me, I always thought a werewolf-looking creature was something that Hollywood made up. And there's just a lot of reports coming in uh, worldwide. Actually, it's not just the United States. So I did a lot of research and found a group called Nor- the North American Dogman Project, and ended up speaking with Jody Cook, who was the founder, or one of the founders, the main guy of it. And I ended up becoming the regional director for the section that we call uh, Region 1. Basically, I oversee 11 states in the West, and I have uh, field investigators and a few researchers throughout those states. So if we get a report... Then I get a hold of uh, those people in those states where the sighting occurred.
0: Okay. All right. Well, that's um, we agree that these things are connected. That's that's our whole uh, orientation at this point. So we're going to turn it over to Rick, you uh, know, for a because um, California is his domain as it is yours
2: mm. uh, to
0: carry on our questioning. Uh, Rick, uh, go ahead, and, and then we'll take a pause and get into some listener questions as well. So take it away, Rick. Okay,
2: Okay, thanks, Paul. So uh, just let me um, color a little bit of Deb's experience that's important to understand uh, to the level of her professionalism and what she does. Um, She not only was a private sort of uh, interest in it, when she came to MUFON, she was selected for the SAT team, which is a special assignment team. At the same time, uh, and that's a a team that uh, collects evidence and proof on on a different level than just a field investigator. Then there's also the star team which she's appointed to, and that is the strike team area research. And what they do, they get deployed within 24 hours to collect evidence and proof. You have to really shine to do that. So uh, from there, Deb got actually employed as an investigator um, through Bieslo Aerospace Advanced Space Studies in a, in a in an effort with MUFON to study these phenomena. So she was actually a paid investigator to do that. And that's a rare. I've never heard of that before tell that initiative. Yeah, me neither. So, so in Dev's uh, 45 or so years of investigating, uh, almost 900 cases, might even be over 900 at this point. She does so many cases at, at, at going on at one time. She's collected not only a, a lot of cases and uh, has a lot of experience, but she's sharp. She trained me to be a, uh, an investigator. She's tough. I'll give her that. <laughs> she's a stickler for details. Um, and as an Eno, sometimes that's important to have someone to do that because uh, I will at times um, not not think of those options, and she's a, a great backup to, to me when I have questions. So with that, uh, that's Dev's background. Deb, do you have anything you want to add before I, I get into some of these cryptid cases?
3: <laughs> no, I think you pretty much touched on it, um, and I, I appreciate that you say that you know I'm a stickler for details because. That's what we do as investigators. When somebody does put in a report, you know, they're, they're, they're excited, they're trying to tell us what happened, but they're not thinking of uh, maybe giving us a, more of a detail of what they saw or maybe how they felt at the time. So when we get in touch with these uh, witnesses, I'll look at a case and try to put myself there and think about different things that we can learn to get more detail. So when I try to help the investigators on our team, especially when they come in new, I, I try to help them to look at an overall view of the sighting and, the, and you know, details are important.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they are. They definitely are. So let's uh, sort of start in with your experience becoming a cryptid investigator. Ben kind of asked the question, but did your experience start from from an actual personal experience with a cryptid, or did you hear about a case and then later on uh, investigate a case? How did you actually... What was the actual starting point for cryptids?
3: Well, when I started to hear about uh, like Dog Man, uh, that really shocked me that that was something that was real. I always, like I said before, I thought that was something that was made up by Hollywood. And when I started to really research, uh, this particular cryptid, I was curious to find out if it was being seen in California where I live. Because, uh, there's many books that have been written about the dog man being seen in Michigan and Ohio, Pennsylvania, you know, out east. And I started to really dig deep to find any kind of evidence if they were seen here. Uh, there is, uh, There was a guy that was a big, Bigfoot researcher out here in California that was heavily involved in going out in the field. And his name is Daryl Owen. And... I end up talking with him, he had an experience out in the field where he saw a black creature and it didn't look like a Bigfoot, it it was uh, very black, he said very, very black. He ended up taking a picture and... Just a description, a little bit of the description uh, for him, it was clearly not a big place. So he wondered what it was, and we, we had spent some time talking about it. And then I started to find out that there was other sightings throughout the area, like there has been several down in the Southern California area. And a very interesting case that happened um, – in the Santa Cruz Mountains, where two men were going to go camping, and during the day they were just kind of walking around scouting out the area, and saw two of them that were feeding on a on a dead animal, and it scared them, and they didn't even stay; they left. Um, I thought that was really interesting because I was raised in the Bay Area, and Santa Cruz is not that far. So, that was really, uh, fascinating to me. So I really wanted to get more involved in that kind of a thing and, uh, joined the NADP.
2: Okay. And, and so was, uh, was that your first cryptid case with, or, or was there one that you... Well,
3: caught? I, I, I ended up, um, well, once I joined the NADP, uh, there was a, a case that came in and it occurred in 2017 up in the Jedediah Forest, the Redwood Forest area. up. It's pretty close to the Oregon border. And um, I ended up taking that case and talking with the witness. And unfortunately that witness doesn't live in California. He lives in Washington. He was just traveling through. And he wanted to stop at the Jedediah Forest because he was a Star Wars fan. And he knew that there was that area, they did some filming there, and he wanted to take his camera and go out there and take pictures. He did come across a couple of people that were out there. In fact, when he drove in to park, there were a few cars. So he knew there was other people around. He did see two guys walking around. And as he was walking along the path, he was alone, and he ended up hearing, like, he said it the growl was so deep, and it, and it really was kind of frightening to him. It, it sounded like two wolves, like, fighting or something. And he, he said that he kind of was looking around like, you know, what could that be? So he started to walk a little bit down the path, and he was looking around because he was getting kind of scared by that noise, and he saw this uh, black uh, creature. He said it was about 30 yards from him, and it was just standing there on its hind legs, so it was standing upright. As he was It was looking at him, and he was looking at it, but he was really looking at, well, is this a bear? But he said it had a snout, a long snout, and it had long, long ears on the top of its head with little tufts of hair, and it had a big chest. It was about seven feet tall, he said, weighed between like 250 and 400 pounds. But the waist kind of went in it wasn't just like a bear would just be a solid mass of an animal it's almost had a waist but the chest was really prominent He said it was like a bodybuilder but when he kind of looked at the face he, he said it it there was a branch kind of going over the face a little bit and um but he said it looked like a werewolf to him. Yeah. And he got really scared, so he started to walk away. Well, he ended up taking a picture. He snapped a picture, then started to walk away about 30 feet. He uh, turned around and took another picture and then just got out of there. And then when he got to his car, he noticed that the, that the cars that were there were still there. So whoever was still out there was, was, out, was out there in that area. Uh, but he got out of there. He, he was he was pretty scared he this thing. But I took his photographs and I did uh, I ran him through a program to check the metadata to make sure that it wasn't manipulated. It wasn't photoshopped. and it wasn't everything was intact in that metadata. And when I spoke with this man, he sounded really sincere. I just didn't see that he was hoaxing it at all. The photographs showed something. And I can't say what that is. Now, you know, if you're going to be a non-believer about something, you're going to say, well, that was a black bear. Right. Okay. Maybe it was. We have witness testimony, just like when we have with UFO witnesses. They come to us and they report something that they believe is unusual so when this man put this report in it was because he felt if this was not a bear this wasn't anything uh you know there was something out of the ordinary
0: well may i interject here um wh- this gets to the question of what exactly are these things now now we've had many many conversations with our good friend Linda Godfrey, who wrote a number of the books I'm sure you're referring to, Dev, uh, particularly about these sightings in Michigan and Wisconsin. <coughs> Excuse me. They were. Um, the question arises, you know, what are these dogmen? You know, no one dares say werewolf. Werewolf is like is, is werewolf is like the word fairy. It just invites <laughs> disbelief. Okay. Um right. She believes these are. Interdimensional, or which I think is is really is not a good term, but or interworld creatures who simply come in, and and she does what you seem to do too, and what we do. She, she asks, what what were the conditions? How did you? What were your personal feelings as you had this experience? Not just the experience, but and many people said that they felt as though they were getting a look from these things that were like, well, I'm here and you're not, or 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 uh, you know you can't figure me out, or something like that, and uh, that they were what they appeared to be, and they weren't, you know, humans turned into dogs and that kind of thing. What say you on all that? What are dogmen? Well,
3: again, you know, I don't know. I'm going to be honest. That's an
0: honest answer. I
3: don't know what they are. They are, or they appear to be, I have never seen this this creature. Uh I wonder sometimes if I was out in the field and I did run across it, you know, how how would I be affected? Would I be afraid? I probably would be. Especially something that's seven feet tall and that large and muscular, like like the report state, I think I'd be very afraid. And I think they rely on you to be afraid. They want you to be afraid so that you can just leave, leave the area. But, and I agree that, Linda, you know, there's been reports where people have seen this creature and it will go behind like a bush and they're waiting for it to come out the other side, and it doesn't. Mm. And then the witness will walk up and kind of go behind the bush to see, well, where did it go? And it's just gone. So that that tells you it's either it's some kind of portal or some kind of... It, it has to be something to where they can go into another dimension... Somewhere where we can't see, you know, we're, we're, we have only our perceptions as human beings. We only see this world, this three-dimensional world. So if these creatures are, in if they're advanced in some way and have the ability to know when they can go through these dimensions, you know, we're at a loss.
2: So, Dev, Dev I, I have a question because it's come up on the – I've heard it on the show before. Uh, I think I, it was, might have been Paul's sighting of Bigfoot or Shane's. I'm not sure. But I remember they were discussing it and they were talking about it uh, in their case that Bigfoot was maybe hunting a deer. Do you remember that, Paul?
0: Yeah, that was uh, that was Shane's sighting in, in May of 2016, Rick. Uh, yeah, and, okay. and it was a black creature, although clearly on two legs.
2: Right. So my question is, in the Santa Cruz Mountains, uh, there were t- there were two witnesses that saw these creatures, uh, I guess, eating a deer. And then there's this um, sighting up in uh, the Jedediah Woods, which um, this man sees this seven-foot-tall creature. And, you know, basically when you discuss that, like how are they getting here, where are they going, do you think that they're coming here to hunt? And do you think that is that – have you seen that with other cases where – a witness sees it, and they're either feeding or hunting um, in that fashion. Maybe they come here, and when they're done, they
3: leave. In many, many, many cases, yes, that is what they're seen doing. They're hunting or they're feeding on something that's dead. And uh, one case I'll never forget, a man who was hunting deer, he caught himself a buck, and he threw it in the back of his truck. He gets in his truck, and he's getting ready to take off. When he feels his truck like something just jumped on the back of the bed, he looks in the rearview mirror, and it's a dog man, right? It's this creature, and it's trying to grab the deer to take it. Wow. And he's just like, he's terrified by this thing. It's scary, you know, it's got the teeth and the snout, you know, and it's huge. And he's just sitting there going, <laughs> oh my god. Uh, it ended up, I think he tried to take off, to hopefully that it will fall back and he he can peel out of there, right? But I think what happened was it, it, it looked at him in the rear view mirror, <laughs> locked eyes with him, and I guess it really invokes a lot of terror, this creature, and that's what everybody uses when they're in that close proximity. They'll say they'll use that word, terrorized. They were terrorized, and it ended up taking that deer right out of the out of the back of the truck. It wanted it. Wow. And so it it seems that feeding and getting food is is paramount to anything.
2: Has it ever attacked a human or any of those reports? I've uh,
3: been some reports that we're hearing that if they did, I don't know if that's been substantiated or not. But um, it seems that they want to drive some fear into you so you'll leave. You'll just leave the area. And most of the time, everybody just, when they see something like that, they want to get out of there anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the thing about hunters. You know, they have all these weapons with them because they're out there hunting. They have a weapon. They're not just hiking, you know, like a person that wouldn't have any kind of weapon on them, but they have guns and what have you, and when they come across this dog man creature, there have been reports where guys have tried to shoot it, and it doesn't do anything. And, uh, they end up these people these guys who have been hunters their entire life, they end up giving it up. They don't hunt anymore. They don't go out and the field. They don't know.
1: <laughs> uh, ben, do you want to jump in here before the break? Uh, sure. Hey, we've got two minutes. Let's shove in let's let's, let's throw in some, some crazy some crazy concepts. So <clears throat> you know, I I think I think the word the word werewolf is is laden with all sorts of baggage. Um, the modern person today hears that and thinks, oh, yeah, you know, like old movies, whatever. Fun fact, um, the word lycanthropos from the Greek, um, it was actually probably, the, I think, the first time that the, that the term was used, and it referred to, um, I wish I had my notes in front of me because I was taking notes on this on a lecture I was listening to a little while ago. Um, it referred to a mountain, specifically in Greece, and a guy that lived on the mountain, and it was considered too spooky by even the Greeks that lived there, because there was an altar on it, and that altar was so old that it was called a bemo. And if anyone would know, if you know any ancient Greek, that's not a Greek word. Um, it's actually an Akkadian word, <laughs> and it's interesting because there's a lot of spooky stuff associated with it, up to and including human sacrifice and all sorts of stuff. Um, and it was, and it was, you know, it was had something to do with. Um, murdering people and and sort of attaining power through doing that and trying to manipulate the natural world and maybe even turning oneself into some sort of beast, you know essentially animalizing themselves and all that all that good stuff. Um, so where am I going with this the The interesting thing about that whole thing is is how ancient people kind of viewed these places. In and, and be being these places, I think there's a natural tendency, and I see it all the time, all sorts of media, documentaries and stuff, um, where it's like, okay, well, you know, they build a civilization, they have aqueducts, and, you know, they do X, Y, and Z, and then, you know, spirituality and religion is just kind of tacked on there, you know, kind of like how we view ourselves today, <laughs> you know, Uh but it was, it was a big part of existence was, you know, Places were super important, and how one perceived the world around them was very important. It's why, you know, um, the River Styx was both not a place and also a place. You know, if you ever read the Iliad and the Odyssey, um, you know, when they talk about shades, they go to a place, sprinkle blood in front of a cave, um, and then the shades come up and they drink the blood, you know. It's like, you know, it's, it's both not a place and a place at the same time. These places can be being places at the same time. Um, interestingly enough, I'm not sure if it has to do with geotechnics. It might. I think, I think a lot of this stuff we tend to, tend to separate. Um, okay, well, we're looking at, at photographic evidence of something, but it's an empirical analysis of a situation. We can know that there was a thing there at this place. Um, but do we know that thing is there? We have an idea of it through you know, empirical analysis. I think the problem is that we're trying to approach something with this materialistic mindset that ultimately is not materialistic. It's ultimately a thing that exists outside of that scope. Which is not a bad thing, because we're trying to understand the world around us, but I think we're kind of losing the forest through the trees. Not to say that You know, you're wrong, because I think 100% there's something weird going on here. I think how we perceive it is the interesting part, because it's like, you know, we make the the point all the time that, you know, you see, you know, a glowing ball of light inside your house. Aha, a ghost. But you see a glowing ball outside your house and you say, aha, a UFO. I think the interesting thing is how we're perceiving these spooky dogmen. Um, I think that they're very much a part of of this sort of hidden objective reality that, you know, we just kind of miss the point on. Because essentially per- subjective reality is informed by an objective, but we perceive it and it goes through this filter. But there's something in between the objective reality and our subjective experience that's kind of, I don't want to say messing with it, but sort of filtering these things whether it's you know cultural norms, how we learn things, you know, how we view the world around us. There's something in there that I think personally needs, needs to change to sort of look at the situation and flip it a little bit and see if we can see it from a different angle. You see where I'm going with this?
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, on that profound note, I think we'll take our mid-show break here. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno and guest co-host Rick Eno. With our wonderful guest, Dev Rooney, today on WOON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with a twist and turn on our discussion after this, and please stick with us.
3: The night is
1: alive.
3: Join us and take a walk on the weird side when you tune in to the Kingdom of Nye, hosted by Heather Wade. The finest in late-night talk, listen live free weeknights starting at 9 p.m. Pacific time at thekingdomofnigh.com, talkstreamlive.com, and the Paranormal Radio app. Want to take a ride?
0: All right. Welcome back to WON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM. And it's Behind the Paranormal. So let's shift gears here and get into some of our listener questions and into this very weird UC Berkeley case that we uh, question provided a question about at the uh, beginning of the show and that Dev is uh, right at the center of. So Ben, why don't we start with the questions from Peter in Bogota,
3: mm, Colombia. Yes, and, the famous uh, Peter.
0: Always sends in the great <laughs> and uh, great questions, so we'll take them one at a time.
1: Indeed. Indeed. Uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of a fun um, a fun sort of alliteration on Peter's name. I'll think of one that's appropriate. Um, so Peter writes to us uh, a couple of questions. We'll start with the very first one, which is, uh, Dev, please give us the complete details on the alleged UC Berkeley experiments in 1981 that involved psychic testing and exposure to a non-human entity. Uh, please include the vis- visual description of the entity, uh, what the student volunteers were told about the being, and uh, what the being did and what happened. 25 words or less.
3: <laughs> well, I, I I do have the, the little write-up. Do you want me to read that?
1: Yeah, sure. It, that works.
3: It, okay. So, basically, um, uh, the witness put in a, a report with fon and I took the case. Uh, this was back in 2018. And... The witness put the report in for the the actual person that went through this this experiment. So they just simply wanted to verify the story by finding out if other people were involved. It was a female. She was one of two students who were selected from her school to be a part of an experiment that took place in 1981. Dozens of students were chosen from schools all over California. The metrics by which they were chosen is unknown. But allegedly the experiment was ran by the U.S. federal government on the Berkeley campus for several days. The experiments were done on psychic powers such as telekinesis and remote viewing. And then on the final day, the students were seated in an auditorium. And the exits were guarded by the armed uh, uniformed soldiers. The students were told that they might be shown something which may terrify them, but warned them not to try to leave the room. They were shown a cage with a creature sitting inside. The creature was described as a gray that looked sick and frail. Some students panicked upon seeing the creature. Some calmly went to the cage. The students were warned not to speak of anything that happened uh, that, that day in that room. And two of the details that were not disclosed is, is because it, it's a way to verify if another person was there or not. And the, So one of them was the description of the cage and then something that was shouted out in the room before that person was removed. So that's basically that in a nutshell. You know, like that, that was what was reported. Now, here's the thing. I ended up speaking with uh, the person that put in the report and the actual uh, person that was in the experiment, and I spoke to them on the phone for about an hour. They they lived out of state, so I couldn't meet with them, and I don't. I'm not even sure if they would have wanted to meet in person or not. But basically, the um, the woman when she told uh Her story to me when she started to talk about the cage and the, and the entity in there she started sobbing so it was very emotional for her and you know she wanted she just wants to get validation basically from someone else that was there because there was many there were many students that were a part of this and she was hoping that somebody would come forward. So I ended up getting a hold of my, uh, I was part of the SAT team at the par- at the time, which is a special assignment team. And I uh, talked with uh, my boss in, in that group and we came up with a plan of how we would handle this. Basically, it was, to try to get a narrative out in all social media platforms as much as we could. We even decided we're, we're going to put it up in on Mewporn.com, uh which, was a, which is, you know, one has their own website, and, and we ended up putting it there so that if there were people that were going to see this, that they could actually um, communicate that way so i got back to the witness and basically stated look this is the plan do you agree upon that and he said yes and he says we'd like you to um you know put this narrative in there and the sat team um my boss said well i would be the only point of contact so we did that they agreed upon it the two people and um so we just put it up on social media to see if we got any hits, anybody that would contact us. We did get a couple of people, and I ended up contacting them and telling them uh, that they could talk to the people because, see, if they were truly there, they would be able to talk about what the actual cage looked like, and if and what was yelled out. Um, in the in the room if they were truly there they would have known all that so he kept me in the loop pretty much about what he learned from those two people uh one person if they were clearly not there because they they didn't get anything right but the one person that they did talk to got some things right um but not everything so, you know, this, this 81, that's a long time ago. And, but you would think that something as shocking to a bunch of teenagers, you would never forget. So, basically, there, as far as my knowledge, n- nobody has come forward with information that leads that they were
0: there so, unfortunately so uh, we have a, a second question from Peter as well
1: we do indeed and that question is uh, tell us your process for in- investigating the case and everything you were able to discover since uh, aside from witnesses uh, there should be paperwork in the UC Berkeley archives uh, there, there
3: yeah if there's anything you want to expand to it. on it anyway yeah, I well, I pretty much already talked about how we handled it and how MUFON wanted to handle it. Um, that's why I I went to my boss in the SAT team because that person, you know, at the time was, uh, you know, pretty high up in MUFON. So I wanted to get some kind of feedback to find out what would be the best approach. And like I said, they decided to just use the media outlets to... To, to get out there. Um, I did not contact Berkeley. If this was truly a federal uh, government thing, I would have never learned anything anyway. Okay. Uh,
1: That's fair. So,
3: uh, you know, I don't know if, you know, when you're a teenager and somebody of authority like, like the government or whatever, they told these kids don't ever talk about it they may never want to
0: in 1981 that might have
3: worked yeah if they would have been traumatized uh, by what they saw then they probably just want to push it out of their mind and they probably don't want to come forward they probably would be scared that there would be some kind of retaliation
0: yeah. Is there a third question there, Ben?
1: Oh, of course. Um, last but not least, uh, has the witness to the uh, Berkeley experiments had any other experiences of high
3: strangeness? The only thing that was discussed was this. That was the only, um, only thing that he talked about. Um, again, this was a MUFON case, so, um, Trying to get as much information as they would allow me to have was the key. So I didn't ask about anything like that. Um, she gave me other information. Actually, they finally told me what the cage looked like, but I won't say. I won't talk about that. I want to keep the integrity of the information and uh, I want to continue to keep that private. And I'm the only one that knows. I didn't... They did not tell me anything about the creature as far as what it looked like, uh, any reaction. Um, <clears throat> but they did tell me about what the cage actually looked like in great detail. And so if somebody out there was part of this um, experiment, they would know that. And if they can describe that then that would be for sure you know one of the things that improve their validity of being there so i want to continue to keep that private
0: okay um i want to get to rick here too but uh there's a a, a for there's sort of an addendum to peter's question here which asks uh pretty much uh what you've already answered but also are you still looking for information on this which you've just answered and um that that's a perfect transition into uh, you telling people where they can get in touch with you. Uh, tell us about your new book and um, website, etc., and uh, let us uh, let us find out about that.
3: Yeah. Um, well, I'm I'm I saved all communication with these uh, these people so I can easily get a hold of them again. Um, I am hoping that they do get their validation that they're seeking from whoever out there uh, and that somebody might be brave enough to come forward. My contact information is up on our website, northerncaliforniamucon.com. So my email is there, and you can reach out to me, uh, and I would forward your information to those people and then you can be able to talk with them yourself. Okay. So I, 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 I would like to see that this is an ongoing thing, even though the case is closed, uh, as far as new because, um, we really didn't have anyone that other than a couple people that did, you know, say, Oh, I was there, you know, um, There really wasn't anything else I could learn.
0: And what about the the book, uh, UFO Investigator, just released June 2nd? Uh, Tell us about that, where people can get it.
3: Yes, um, you can get that on Amazon. And, you know, the title is UFO Investigator, A Personal Look into Circumstance, Investigations, and Discovery.
0: Okay, great. I know that
3: Rick. I know that Rick bought the book, so <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Well, we and, didn't have a chance yet, but we're, we're going to. Uh, so, Rick, Rick, you want to jump in here uh, with any uh,
2: sure.
0: final question about that case or um, anything well, else for
2: that matter? Okay. Well, I think uh, I think the Berkeley case. Everything's been been put out there that we can put out there that the tip it has. It's interesting. It's, it'll be interesting to see where it goes, and you never know what's actually behind it. So, um, but I do have. Uh, some comments. Uh, I did start reading Dev's book. Um, and I will say, um, what I liked most about it was the fact that when I was reading the book, and it's similar to your writing, Paul, in, in some aspects, I feel like I'm on the journey with her. Like I'm beside her as this is all going on. So if, when you read the book, you feel like you're part of the book, you're not just reading texts and facts and figures and you're getting a perspective on what her mentality was in those moments which is which is wonderful so it keeps your attention and the book kind of breaks down into her experiences chapters three and six are really about cases and some of those cases uh, are are very fascinating i'm not going to let the cat out of the bag you're going to have to go and read it yourself and maybe on a later show we can discuss those but um, very fascinating cases and then seven is where it's all kind of put together and where where dev's headed now um, i encourage anyone to read this book um, because it gives you an idea of what uh what well all of you went through as investigators it paints the picture really well um, and it gives you an, an idea of what what it is to piece these things together not just in your mind but in actual reality what what is it so i encourage everyone to get onto amazon and and get uh get the book um I would ask Dev. Uh, she obviously could have written this book, I don't know, a decade ago or more, but she, cho- what was about right now? What, what was it about this time where you felt this book was necessary?
3: Well, through all of my sightings and all of my exposure uh, investigating UFOs, I was having a lot of different types of experiences throughout my life. And because... I started to feel like I was psychic myself. I believed in that kind of uh, medium, and I would go to psychics for different things that I would want to know about myself. And it just seemed like these psychics were telling me, "Well, you're psychic yourself," and I kind of like a sort of agreed that kind of knew, but. They were telling me that I should be writing a book, and I had always wanted to uh, write a book about my passion, which is UFO investigations, but I didn't know, it was almost like I didn't know how to start. So this book took me about two and a half years, and I was working full-time at the time, and so it was really hard to find a lot of time to to uh, work on it. So it was kind of slow at first, as I started to kind of see how I wanted to start it. You know, because when you when you want to start a project, you're always thinking how it's going to begin. So obviously, I wanted to talk about being a UFO investigator. So that was quick and easy to say. Well, I'm going to pick several cases to uh, profile some of the most fascinating ones that really I enjoyed working on and reading about myself, so that's how it began, and that got me going really quick, because then it was like all about my investigations. But when you're talking with people about their own sightings, they they, they talk about their sighting. And they're a little bit about how it impacted their lives. like they started to realize, well, I remember as a kid I saw something, you know, type thing. And after they would talk about their their sighting and stuff, they would ask me, well, you, you investigate UFOs, have you ever seen anything? And I would share a, a couple of things, you know, and say, yeah, I've seen craft, I've seen stuff um, all the time. And... That always kind of gave them a little bit of comfort, because some people were really brave enough to talk about their sighting to family, co-workers, friends, and they were getting laughed at, like, ah, and they were really appreciative to have somebody to listen to them without being laughed at, and it really helped them to know that I had my own sightings, so I was there in the boat with them, yeah. so... That's how the book became. um, I wanted to kind of talk about how this impacted me and how it all began. Because something happened when I was a child, and after it happened, I kind of forgot about it. And then, I don't know what sparked the memory, but then I remembered, and I always wondered what happened. So... The book tried to take you on a journey of understanding where I came from, my interest came from, what had happened to me. I wanted to include my investigations because that's what I do. And then I wanted to wrap it up with trying to find out, am I really an, an, an experiencer? So I decided to go under hypnosis. To explore that. So that's what this book is about. Okay.
0: And, uh, Dev, uh, would you... Oh, uh,
3: sorry.
0: I, I'm sorry, we've got about a minute left here. I just wanted to ask, uh, Dev very quickly, what is your opinion, Dev, on all this alleged disclosure that's going on? The UFOs are all over the national news, with depending on what's your opinion of how valid any of that
3: is? Well, I believe in UFOs. Uh, they are real. Um, I don't need anybody to tell me that, yeah. <laughs> obviously. But uh, I found it interesting that when it came out in 2017, that the uh, Pentagon released these things, um, I think that was already a, a soft disclosure there. So now it's ramping up because um, I think Trump's executive order was to give uh, Congress until June 25th to disclose what they know about UFOs. So it's, it's, there's a deadline. So we'll see. What's going to happen? Some people say it's not going to happen. I don't know. I'm just sitting back with my popcorn.
0: <laughs> well, well, I've yet to hear anything that the, the investigators haven't known for the last 50 years, anyway. So yeah. I think it's blunting myself. I don't know. So, um, okay, uh, Rick, any last thoughts? Well, I shouldn't put it uh, that way, but you know it.
2: Yeah, it's kind of dark. Um, just quickly, Deb, do you feel that the, the UFO paranormal phenomenon is tied together? Or what's your personal quick philosophy on that?
3: Oh, absolutely. Everything is tied together and I think we need to realize that and you're just, you know, I think the more that we're open to everything that everything is possible. Everything. We may not understand things based on human perception. That's just it. That's all we have is our perceptions and our life experiences to try to understand and, and Look
0: at the world around us. Okay, there we are. Well, let's get into, thank you, Dev, a tremendous conversation, and we're going to have you back again. But right now we're going to get into our uh, announcements. And, Ben, would you take it away, please?
1: Indeed. So uh, my dad and I were very disappointed uh, when we were not a part of the panel discussion last week uh, to appear on Peter Robbins' great show on uh, KGRA. Uh, Meanwhile, here on Earth, Apparently, the production uh, facility and some of the participants were caught in one of the recent internet out- outages, and plans uh, for the show had to be postponed. The format: uh, people with theological educations discussing UFOs and aliens, and uh, watch for a rescheduled date. And on our show, our, our show now has an app. Um, it's bare bones, just mostly uh, of our past shows, uh, but if you, we we do plan to add features as we go, um, and it should be in the Apple. iTunes Store and Google Stores as well uh, in a month or two, Uh, but there's a link at behindtheparanormal.com if you'd like to download it now.
0: Okay, check out our own books. Uh, Ben and I have written two books together uh, in 2016: Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know Is Wrong from Schiffer Books. (coughs) Excuse me, and um, something maybe of some relevance to this show: uh, Behind the Paranormal Two. Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You Never Heard Of from Barking Cat Books. That's available as well. Uh, And then a bunch of books by me, uh, along with those of our other guest co-hosts. Books, uh, they are available on the show website, BehindTheParanormal.com. You can also find out more about the show, our many cases over the years, our public appearances, and how to book us, along with some of our 900-plus free recorded shows from our 12-plus years on the air, including our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS radio, along with special shows and podcasts. And next week is our 900th show, but it is not our 900th show uh unofficially we've done all sorts of other podcasts and interviews and special shows that so uh, we're probably closer
1: to 950 indeed and if you want to listen to these the other 899 shows from this medium um, as well as some of our past shows uh you can go to uh, behindtheparanormal.com and find those or if you'd like you can go to youtube uh itunes apple podcasts uh, the app, the Paranormal Radio app, TalkStream Live, Spotify, and many more. They're all available on there.
0: Well, they're not all
1: available. I, I, I don't, I don't available. know how it
0: works. Most of them are Most in there. Most of them are available on there. Catch as catch can. Anyway, our website has a charity page as well uh, with links to several good causes we have adopted on the show. And uh, we, we know the people who run these charities. So it goes to the right place. Whatever you can do. Uh, the newest one is Hope for Hilldale Cemetery in ha- April, Massachusetts. Other charities include USA Cares, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, Helping Hades Orphans, Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles, Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, and the Sisterhood of Ground Zero, along with the Milk Fund here in northern Rhode Island. Quite a variety. Uh, Rick, what's going on with you?
2: Well, school's officially out, so I have four kids, and I've got to find something to do for them for the summer. And then I put them on the show you know, we, we
1: could, yeah. yeah just put them to work have them yeah. have them go out to flap areas you know
0: we, we like Aria Aria your daughter Aria in her uh, Aria. Uh, uh, upright canine cryptid costume Yes yeah.
2: yeah. you mean Aria 51?
1: Yeah
0: right? Aria 51
2: yes <laughs> Zing. Um, and then it, then I'm just going to wait patiently for June 25th and see what that's all about with this closure.
1: All right. Mm.
0: So let's uh, we'll talk about what's in the pantry for next week, then.
2: Well, we're,
1: we're taking it out of the pantry and preparing it for dinner uh, next week, June 20th. Uh, we'll be celebrating our 900th show officially with open lines and some surprise callers. Uh, sadly, I will not be here. Uh, so special guest co-host Shane Searway and Mark D'Antonio. Will be taking my place. You need both of them, both very. It takes <laughs> two to
0: replace you, Ben.
1: Oh God, and I, I, I think I'm vastly Dude. underqualified to be <laughs> to have such people take my place.
0: Anyway, no time for a quote. I'm Paul Eno,
1: and I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us. Wait a co- minute. Oh, I'm let's sorry, let's Rick. <laughs> okay, sorry, it was a reaction there.
2: <laughs> okay, I'll go. And I'm Rick Eno. Thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we'll see you next time on Behind the Paranormal.
3: Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition